we continue to navigate this letter to sort of keep connected with what we've already been experiencing, because when you go through a letter for three years, um, it can be easy to forget from week to week how we're connected, how we're connected to the larger story. Um, and Paul, for the writer of Romans, for 11 chapters, went on about doctrine, about what we think, and in chapter 12, transitioned to how then shall we live, essentially. Those sound a lot cleaner than they really are, but essentially that's how Paul uh, transitions. And he says in chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in light of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, because of all of this truth, this orthodoxy, here's how you live, orthopraxy, so that we shouldn't just be people who think or have thoughts, right, but have actions, behavior, character, that we live in a particular way in light of the gospel. Uh, And last week, in reflection of him moving into this idea of government and how we're to relate to government as God's people, we began to imagine a world together, really a posture towards the world. And we simply asked, what if Christians lived not like those who were right or thought they were right? What if Christians lived like those who knew that they were loved? What if that was our posture? I'd like to explore that question and hopefully some of those answers a little bit more today. If you remember, Paul was talking about taxes, but he wasn't really talking about taxes in the previous passage in verses 5 through 7. He was talking about a lot more than that, which anytime we really feel as though we've nailed down, here's what the Bible is saying. I mean, almost always there's more to explore uh, in that when we really feel like, hey, this is the right thing and this is the wrong thing. Jesus, as we look, sort of writes a third way on the edge of the coin and says, have you considered this? Have you considered that there's more than just knowing what is right or wrong, but the good and the true and the beautiful? In fact, we needed to pay our taxes or learn to do that. So Jesus says in Matthew 22, so you can move on to things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Paul, I think, uh, builds on this theme of love today. And like his teaching on, on taxes, this good word that he has to deliver us really originated with Jesus' own message about love. In fact, the Christian vision of love is incredibly old. It goes all the way back to the commandments of Moses that God originally gives his people in that prophet's day. And perhaps surprising but true, the love of God is always wrapped up within the laws of God. And this is the habit that I'd like to address a little bit today about why we always pull those things apart that love and law were actually meant to be together, that love is always wrapped up in law. See, love is fundamental to our existence. Scientists Sue Carter and Stephen Porges explain in their report to the National Library of Medicine that without loving relationships, humans fail to flourish even if all of their other basic needs are met. Without love, we can't flourish. Yet, I think it's, we have a really hard time defining love. And isn't that interesting? We have a fundamental need for something that we cannot define. If you ask any number of people, what is love, right? First, you get a little half smile because it's hilarious that you would even ask such an absurd question, right? But then you'd get just as many different answers from people about what is love. And yet we all know we cannot live without it. This is tricky because our need could not be higher for something, and our understanding of that something could not be more complex. And I think this is what the Scriptures address with us today. And as we navigate the the Scriptures, I think we're going to have two different temptations. Depending on your background, your perspective, your religious upbringing, you're going to have two, one of two reactions likely when it comes to love. We're either going to belittle love, or we're going to deify love. We're going to make too little of love, or we're going to make too much of it. 
See, for instance, today, we're going to be tempted to minimize Paul's teaching about the relationship between the law and love as mere sentimentality. It's just a warm fuzzy. It's just a nice thought, but not livable. What matters, we might presume, is truth and obedience and submitting ourselves to God's holiness. That's what we're supposed to do when we open up the Bible. See, I think ultimately what we do there is that we misunderstand a love as the enemy of truth, that love is seeking to destroy truth as opposed to see them in relationship. And if that's not our temptation, we'll be likely tempted to dismiss truth in general and the law in particular as unnecessary in the face of love, that what matters is loving people. We don't want to worry about the particulars of obedience or the commandments. Those things don't really matter. We just need to love each other. And in doing so, we'll misunderstand the law as the enemy of love. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? That either way, we have a course correction that we need to understand. We either make too little or we make too much of love. And I want to suggest to you that the Bible does neither. Jesus does neither. And in this passage, Paul does neither of those things. That's what I'd like to talk about. I want to talk about the relationship that Paul explains between love and the law. I want to talk about what it looks like for them to live together, not as enemies, but as allies, if you will. Here's how we'll organize our time as we walk through this particular passage. We'll consider that love is a permanent obligation, and then we'll consider that love is defined by God, and then lastly, we'll consider that love is the only law. So love is a permanent obligation, love is defined by God, and love is the only law. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, We have much to consider. Our minds are already racing. Uh, And I know for me, when I I hear a hard truth coming, I start building my defense about why I don't have to change. And I want to do that now. I want to act because like I'm the preacher and I've been working on this for a week that I don't have to change. I just have to deliver something. So forgive me for that presumption. Because your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword Hebrews teaches us. It cuts both ways. It afflicts the comfortable and it comforts the afflicted. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that it would bring comfort, it would bring healing, it would bring correction, and it would bring joy for your glory. Our good we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, love is a permanent obligation. I think that's how Paul opens up this text. Look at verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, remember, Paul has just told us that we should pay the taxes that we owe, pay the revenue that we owe, pay honor and respect that we owe. And in essence, he's been instructing his readers that you're meant to live debt-free. However, he's not saying that all debt is bad debt, so we should be very careful to make an entire view of our finances based on this one particular text or this one particular passage, because Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, verse 42, give to one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So it's not wrong to borrow. Not all debt is bad. Rather, the point that Paul is making is that Christians should be a kind of people who are known as those who pay their debts. They are known as those who don't let debts hang out there and try to avoid them or just ignore them and hope that they go away, right? Maybe some of us, this is how we have learned to deal with our student loans. We're just going to ignore them long enough, and then hopefully they will, they will just disappear when we wake up one day. I, I've been out of school for a minute. They're still very much there, just for whatever that's worth. 
He says, though, that it's not wrong to do all of those things, that we should be a people, rather, who have integrity, who, who pay what we say that we will pay, except there's one thing. There's one wrench in the system, if you will, of that principle. There's this one debt that you will never fully pay because it works very differently than every other form of debt. That is the debt of love. Paul first spoke about this love debt back in Romans chapter 1. Essentially, he said that he has this obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, back in Romans 1 verse 14. And that, that Greek word, that, that word that's translated into obligation in chapter 1, is actually the noun form of this verb O in Romans 13. So as you can see that chapters 1 and 13, the debt is not just to one group of people or one kind of person. It's to Greeks and non-Greeks. It's to church family and friends and neighbors and enemies. It's to people you agree with. It's to people you don't agree with. See, as Christians, we owe everyone love. We owe everybody love. There's never a question, is that person a worthy candidate of my affection? The scriptures are like, yeah, they are. This is what Paul is, is anchoring this argument on. In fact, Jesus tells us that in John's gospel that this is how people are going to actually know you're a Christian. They're going to identify you as a follower of Jesus because of the way you love each other and that you love one another. They'll know that we're followers of Jesus by our love because our love reflects His love. Our love reflects that we've been with Him, that we've had an interaction, an engagement with His love, a relationship with Him based on love. So what if Christians lived not like those who thought they were right? What if Christians lived like those who knew they were loved like that. See, this begins to confront this lie that love is the enemy of truth. Many of us have been taught, perhaps in more conservative religious circles, that we have a message to share rather than a love to demonstrate. You got something to talk about, so tell everybody about it, and if you're telling people about it, ducky for you. You have done the Christian thing right. You're meant to be courageous, bold, and articulate in these sorts of things. We need to tell people that they're sinners in need of a Savior. And so we get a little nervous, right, when we talk about love. That feels like we're letting go of truth. It feels like we're letting go of a message, right? But love is not truth's enemy. It's never been truth's enemy. Love tells the truth. Paul is telling us that love embodies truth, that love is bigger than a message, but it does not negate the message. It proves it. It proves the thing that you and I have been tasked to communicate. See, we are bound up in a story and a reality, not just to tell somebody about someone, but to act like we've actually been with Him, to live like we've actually walked with Jesus, not just like we read the book about Him. Are you with me? It's a very different experience with someone who has read the book and the person who's like, no, that author, that's my dad. That's my, I, so I know that story. I lived that story, not just that was a good tale to tell. Let me tell you about it. See, Paul is saying that we owe everyone love, and we always will. We always will. There's two primary reasons why. We'll address them really quickly for the sake of time. But essentially, that we owe everyone love because we've been loved. So, if Jesus has loved you and said that I have given you this new commandment, then our permanent obligation to love is rooted in the reality that you have been bestowed upon with an infinite kind of love from your Creator and God. The way we live in light of that truth that reality is by loving people. See, truth and love are meant to be together. We also owe everyone love because they've been created by God. The Scriptures teach us that God created 
humanity in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. So the baseline of our Christian understanding of human value is rooted in the imago Dei, or the image of God. Therefore, I'm obligated to love anyone and everyone, not because they treated me nicely, or maybe they will if I show them kindness, right? But because they bear the image of God, that no matter what, that's what's got my attention more than anything else. Preacher and social activist John Perkins explains that you don't give people dignity. He says you affirm it. You acknowledge it. It is there whether you like it or not. Therefore, we are obligated to love everyone. That's the truth, not only about God's character, but about God's nature. So if you don't love, you are lying. You are lying about who God is. You are lying about who you claim to be. Love is the evidence that we have been loved. Love is the evidence that we understand who made you and who you look like. So as long as these two things are true, as long as you have been loved by Jesus and as long as you have been created in the image of God and everybody else has, you've got an obligation. You owe love to everyone. That's what Paul is saying. Because of how you've been loved and who has created you. That ultimately uh, seems like a heavy burden, though, doesn't it? That seems like a lot. (laughs) It seems like a lot to constantly be wearing. But there's this beautiful truth that one uh, New Testament teacher realized about this particular kind of debt. He says, reflecting on this passage, that the more they pay this debt, the richer they will be the thing that is paid to them. In other words, love is the only debt that pays you back immediately. Immediately. Love is the only debt that pays it back. Tim Keller says that love, true love, is generative, is that it's the only kind uh, of love that makes more of itself along the way, right? This is beautiful, that love begets love. Yet again, that's telling the truth about God, because He is a kind of God who creates, who, who makes much of His love. Now, when we love We don't simply love then to nourish others. We actually are doing something that is good for our own souls. It is not our primary motivation to do something that is good for us, but it's a corollary to our creation and the understanding and the power of love. See, love is the only debt that we continually pay every single day, and it is the only debt that pays us back. Love always gives more than it requires. That's even true when love is unrequited, when it's not reciprocated believe it or not. Because when we love, we are free. Even if someone doesn't love us back, we are free because we have fulfilled what the Scriptures teach. Therefore, we are unburdened by shame, by guilt, by selfishness and death. Love is freedom, yet it is also our permanent obligation. So everyone deserves our love. We owe everyone our love, Paul says. And as Christians, then, we don't just have a story to tell, but a love that demonstrates the story that we tell. And this love tells the truth. But what exactly is love? Who defines it? Who controls it? Who sets its limits and its powers? And the way I think that we fulfill this debt really depends on how we define love. The way we love people depends very much on what we exactly are saying or not saying that love is. And I think we get nervous that when love interrupts the supposed like natural flow of love, then it's going to not be genuine. And so others of us are getting nervous now. So we're going to trade places with those in the room who were just really uncomfortable, felt like, you know, truth was being assaulted, and now we're going to put the shoe on the other foot, if you will. Perhaps you grew up in a more liberal church context environment. Perhaps you didn't go to church at all. But regardless, many of us were shaped by the idea that truth was coded language. 
It was coded language for moralism or harsh spiritual rigidity, rules of heavy spiritual environment, and it often is exactly that. Truth is often used as a way of covering spiritual abuse, a list of rights and wrong used to gauge who is right, who is wrong, who is in, who is out. And we learned then, not maybe by what someone said, but the way that we were treated, we learned that truth is merely the absence of love, that those two things don't show up together. Consequently, love has been solidified in many of our hearts and minds as something that is self-determined purely in the eyes of the beholder. Ironically, this vision of truth is the prevailing truth, or rather this vision of love is the prevailing tr truth in many cities like Chicago. Love is its own reason, and it's personally defined and personally fulfilled. I mean, didn't Lizzo sing, I'm, I'm my own soulmate, right? I fulfill myself. I know what I need, and so I will meet my needs. That's love. Love, Lizzo. John tells us, though, that God is love in John chapter, 1 John chapter 4. In other words, love is not self-determined value. It's not a self-determined affection or need. Love is not its own irrefutable reason. Love is determined and defined by God, by His behavior, by His character, by His affections, and by His Word. That's what Paul is explaining next. He says love is defined by God. Look again at verse 8. And we'll move on into nine. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says love somehow fulfills or it embodies the fullness of the law. And we'll get more to that in a minute. But he does so by listing a few of those particular laws, particular commandments that love fulfills. He lists the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and the tenth commandment from Exodus chapter 20. All of the laws that address neighbor and our relationship with neighbor. They're about how we treat and love one another. In other words, Paul defines love by interpreting the law. Do you see that? He's defining love by interpreting the law. He says love is faithfulness, and so don't commit adultery. He says, love is nurturing, so don't murder. Love is generous, so don't take, but rather give. Love is content. It knows what enough is, and so it doesn't covet what someone else has. See, Paul defines love by interpreting the law, and the law is not arbitrary. The law is true, and it's good and beautiful because the law flows out of the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of God. The law is meant to reflect His character, Love is faithful because God is faithful. Love is nurturing because God is nurturing. Love is generous because God is generous. Love is content because God is content. Are you with me? That the law reflects God and God is love. Therefore, love looks like God and He defines it. If we want to know what love is, we have our answer. It's meant to look like God. What if true of Him is loving? It's challenging though. It's challenging for many of us to envision the idea of love having parameters around it or defining it. In fact, it feels really nice when it's not defined, when it's just free-flowing and kind of emotional. It's kind of more of a feeling. It feels right because love is so deeply personal, isn't it? In 2019, Allure magazine surveyed 31 different perspectives on love. The author of the article, Rosemary Donahue, 
explained that Hallmark, Hollywood, Nashville have all tried to define love, but the reality is that we have our own definitions of this shape-shifting concept. People revealed these different definitions of love. A, a, a myriad of different participants shared, I thought, thoughtful and beautiful expressions on love. They said that love is building up. Love is giving space for refuge. Love makes room for growth. Love is sharing food. Yes and amen. Love is comfort. We might have divided the room. Some of you are like, love knows when, what's on its plate and what's on someone else's plate. Don't touch my stuff, right? It was inspiring to read a lot of these reflections. Inspiring to understand the way that people thought about affection and the joy that they found in loving and being loved. But it was also clear that we don't mind defining love. We just don't want someone else to do it for us, right? I don't mind bringing definition and truth to love as long as it's something that I have determined, as long as it's something that, that I have articulated. Yet, I think in our not providing a universal definition for love, we kind of do. This is, this is the uh, really unintended consequence, I think, of trying to take our hands off of a situation. To not define love is to define it. If you notice that the writer defined love as a shape-shifting concept, that's a definition. That's a definition that it is a malleable concept. They are not alone, though, in their perspective. We've all been discipled by a wider culture, a narrative, to not allow love of someone else or the way that they define it to define us or to define our term of love. But that is a definition of love that we've all somehow agreed to, that it's a thing that I get to define for myself. See, in not setting parameters, we set parameters. It's kind of wild. Now, there is great merit, I think, in value and understanding this more modern expression and idea of progressive society of what love looks like. It sets a high importance on things that many of us have overlooked for generations, things like dignity and autonomy, and uniqueness, and value within a particular person. That's all really good, but that goodness flows out of creation, not out of our own social construct. The goodness goes even deeper than that. The law of love runs deeper. Scripture affirms this longing for universal dignity, but it also challenges our propensity to pick and choose which parameters of love suits us. We learn that love is not whatever we say it is, that love must look like God. That's what love is. Love must conform to His image. And so Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. See, Jesus is the one <clears throat> who embodied and demonstrated love perfectly. And so by telling us, or by living that way, He's telling us the truth about His heavenly Father. He's telling us the truth about what love looks like, because no matter how we define love individually or as a people, we've all, according to the Scriptures, been an adulterous people. We've all hated and failed to nurture one another. We've lacked generosity. We've longed for what others have. In other words, we have not loved in accordance with the teaching that Paul is laying out here, and our refusal to love has broken us. It's broken others. It's broken our world. And so we need this kind of sacrificial love of Jesus because we have failed to love. And His love teaches and shapes and empowers and informs us the love of others, to love others the way that He has loved us. His love led Him to suffering for someone else, to bleeding blood that should have been spilled from our bodies, of dying a death that we should have endured by being buried in our own graves. What if we lived like that? 
What if we lived as followers of Jesus, not like those who thought that they were right, but those who knew they were loved by someone like that? I think we'd be a lot more peaceful, a lot more chill. We'd get bothered by the right things and not the wrong things. We'd get angry at things that defy his character, not my comfort and my preferences. We'd get angry at injustice. You see, it's on the cross where Jesus makes a choice, or really, he refuses to make a choice. He does not choose between love and truth. He brings them together. See, in truth, he dealt with our sin and our brokenness. In truth, he honored the Heavenly Father's glory and holiness and righteousness. In love, he had compassion on us and heals our ailment by allowing his body to be infected with our disease. In love, he took our place. You see, truth and beauty as one. Love defined by God brings love and truth together. So we owe everyone love. It's a permanent obligation. And we don't have just a message to tell, but a love to embody, to demonstrate. A love which has been defined and even demonstrated through the nature of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Truth and love are not adversaries, church. They are allies. And what the Christian church is meant to do is wherever we see those two separated, say, nah, those things need to get brought back together. Whenever one gets venerated over the other, nope, that's not the Lord. He is both. He is truth and beauty on full display. In fact, this love, this type of love, real love, becomes our law. Look at Romans 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. So Paul repeats this idea that he opened up this passage with. It's a principle which spans across the entirety of the Christian scriptures. That's what Jesus says in John 15, that his commandment was love. It's why Moses penned the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 4, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the law. Taken from Leviticus chapter 19, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And then on the end of that, God says, because I am the Lord. This is truth. This is beauty. This is love. Loving God and loving others becomes the central command of the Scriptures. Remember that tangent we went on last week in Matthew chapter 22? We considered Jesus teaching on taxes to learn a third way to pay taxes. It wasn't just are you paying taxes or are you not, but are you really understanding love? Do you really understand your heart? Do you really understand what this is really about? Jesus was being tested by four groups of moralistic, antagonistic people. They sort of trade places. They, two of them gave a shot, then a third one, and then a fourth one was like, no, we know, we know what to bring up and do it. And so that fourth group, the Pharisees, come up and talk to Jesus about the law. And they ask him, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? You shall love the Lord of God, your God, Jesus said, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, Jesus says, depends the law and the prophets. That's a shorthand way of saying the entire Jewish scriptures, the entire Old Testament. So which is the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? Love. What's the greatest truth? Love. Love is the only law. It's not what we feel. It's not what we define. It's not being nice to someone when we don't want to. Love is our obligation. It's a reflection of God. Love is what God commands. He points, Jesus does, to both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Love your neighbor. Love God. But then he says all the commandments are dependent on love. What's that mean? It means the Christian life is not a list. Some of us, that's really frustrating. I would love for it to be a list. 
Just give me 10 things, I don't know, that you could do. We'd shellack them on a wall somewhere, I don't know. And then we just say, are you doing those things or not? See, what those laws are meant to do is point you to a love. Those laws are meant to reveal something in you that you need a love. See, I have had other gods. I have taken his name in. But you go down the list and none of us, none of us satisfies. They're meant to point us to love. See, there's a third way. It's not about have you done the list or have you not, but do you know this love? Have you had an engagement with this love? Do you know how much you are loved? My sisters, do you know how loved you are? My brothers, do you know how loved you are? Can you imagine if when our groups got together, we didn't make sure that everyone followed the list for the week, but we made sure that everyone knew they were loved? Can you imagine how different groups would go down? Can you imagine how different this city would be? If we started interacting with people, not, let's see, are they in the box? Are they out of the box? Are they doing Jesus things or not? Do they know they're loved? Or not? Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine what would happen to your heart if you didn't have this sort of shameful expectation that I've got to make sure everyone's following the list? You don't. You don't. That should be like this wonderful set of shackles just falling off of your body. You don't have to make sure everybody's following the rules. You need to make sure they know the love. That when they see you, they're like, dude, I don't know anything about her. I don't know anything about him, except they won't stop loving me, and it's kind of creeping me out. Right? Not they always want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. Yes, of course, there's holiness and righteousness, but all of that comes in what? A person. A person who loves. A person who embraces. A person who draws near. A person who dies for your sins and for mine. What if Christians were not known for those who thought they were right, but Christians knew that they were loved? I think what would happen is that we would live with this permanent obligation. I think what would happen is that we would submit to this idea that God defines love, not us. I think that we would understand that love is our only law, and I think we'd finally see a world where truth and beauty are not adversaries, where they're not in competition but ultimately, they are joined as one. So let's pray for that together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. Too often, we pull apart what you have eternally wed in your Son. Father, forgive me how often that is an inclination in my spirit. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's following the list? Who's not? instead of owing them nothing but love. That's a new lesson for many of us, and so we ask for your help to learn it. Not just as we've gathered as your church, but Father, as we live our lives, would you teach us the beauty of this law of love that would compel us to righteousness and obedience, that would cause surrender and joy and healing so that ultimately the world would know they would know this love they would know you are God and that truth and beauty would never be pulled apart again we long for that day in Jesus name, amen